0: This morning we finished this series we have been in through 1 Corinthians in these four weeks uh, as we've read along with the lectionary text. And this week is 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting in verse 16. Uh, we enter with Paul in kind of the middle uh, of a section and in his argument, but we'll talk a little bit about how we might understand where he is going here. Paul writes, if I preach... The gospel, I have no reason to brag. Since I'm obligated to do it, I'm in trouble if I don't preach the gospel. If I do this voluntarily, I get rewarded for it. But if I'm forced to do it, then I've been charged with a responsibility. What reward do I get? That when I preach, I offer the good news free of charge. That's why I don't use the rights to which I'm entitled through the gospel. Although I'm free from all people, I make myself a slave to all people to recruit more of them. I act like a Jew to the Jews so I can recruit Jews. I act like I'm under the law to those under the law so I can recruit those who are under the law, though I myself am not under the law. I act like I'm outside the law to those who are outside the law so I can recruit those outside the law, though I'm not outside the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ. I act weak to the weak so I can recruit the weak. I have become all things to all people so I could save some by all possible means." All the things I do are for the sake of the gospel so I can be a partner with it. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I figured since we are... But a week away from the end of football season, I would give you a football illustration uh, to begin the day. So I remember in August of 2019, which was in the before times, um, and, and Andrew Luck at the time, was the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. Now, a few of you sports types are like, well, duh, of course he was. And the rest of you are like, I don't know who he is, and that's okay. So I'm going to explain, all right? So Luck had been the number one pick for the Indianapolis Colts in the early 2010s. And he was the heir to Peyton Manning's throne, you know, the guy in all the commercials. And he retired when it seemed like he was just reaching the peak of his powers And here's what the collective sports world said on the day that Andrew Luck retired. That's a shame. Because after all, we are used to generational talents like this in our hallowed sport, grinning and bearing it through every conceivable injury. If you remember Peyton Manning had this injury to his neck and it took like years of reconstructive surgery. He was actually training in Durham for some time while he was uh, rehabbing that neck. And he rehabbed from that and played a couple more years and even won a Super Bowl after that. Tom Brady played beyond what seemed possible at the highest level and still looks really good. God bless him. And Andrew Luck was considered on that level of play. He he had just rehabbed back from a major injury, was ready to come back, and he retired in the middle of the preseason. Like, that's not the time you're supposed to do that. And he gave this interview two years after that happened. And Luck said this. He said, to play quarterback, you're not allowed to worry about anything except the task at hand. And that seeps into other areas of life. It's not the healthiest way to live, end quote. That sounds reasonable, but it also sounds like what we expect from our top performers. It's like we expect these people who are exceptional at what they do, that they owe us in the general public something, Like, oh, we should have watched that guy play for another 10 years. Why we feel that, I don't know, but we do. And luck felt what he called an insane conflict of giving his life to becoming one of the best in the world at his craft and wondering what's left when it's over. He had his first baby on the way at the time of his retirement, and he felt like he wasn't going to be the husband or the father that he wanted to be while continuing to play. And so he retired at the age of 30. Luck sacrificed a career where he he would have made a lot more money. Now, granted, he already made more money than any of us in this room and probably all of us put together. But he also sacrificed a very good chance at championships and accolades like Hall of Fame and things like that. And that's a shame is what the sports world said, giving up all of that. Today's scripture begins in a way where we are not quite sure what Paul is talking about or where he is. And it's important to know where we are Paul is in the middle of an explanation to the Corinthians about why they should not eat meat that was served in an idol's temple. We talked about that some last week. And the Corinthians who wrote to Paul expected that he would be on their side. After all, followers of Jesus have freedom, right? So Paul begins to show his point using his own life as an example, as a witness. For Paul refused to accept payment for his ministry amongst the Corinthians. At first glance, this seems rather irrelevant for us reading this today, but let's think about what Paul is doing and how it relates to his overall message about freedom and about being a partner in the gospel of Jesus. In Paul's day, a philosopher that was around who would come and teach in a region, who would travel to places and kind of bring their knowledge, they made a living in one of four different methods. The first one was this. They would charge fees for their teaching. The sophists, the kind of wise teachers around, they followed that method. So I don't know whether it was like, hey, I'm here for a week, you pay me this for a week, or it's a wisdom by the hour type of practice, not really sure. But what we know is that they charge regularly for their teachings. The second method was that they would be sponsored by a wealthy patron's home. Think like the Medicis in Florence sponsoring art. Uh, maybe they would sponsor, they'd have like, hey, we've got our own smart guy to live among us. And, and, and they would be uh, part, of, part of that household, maybe teaching the kids to be philosophers and things like that. Now, in these first two methods, we kind of see some problems and some issues The philosophers would be beholden to the interests of the people who were footing the bill, right? So especially in the case of a a rich family, well, they would always want to speak in ways that favored that rich family, or they would, you know, if if they were being patronized in that way. Number three, they would beg on the streets was another way philosophers made their money. Now, the cynics famously lived that way, so cynics were... um, not, I'm not thinking like cynical like today, but they were actually a group um, of, of philosophers and they would make their living by begging um, on the streets. And the fourth way to make their money was they would work at a trade. This was ultimately what Paul did. In Acts, we learned that Paul was a tent maker. Uh, it was a common practice of that day to be someone who worked with canvas to make tents. Um, and And that was Paul's job. He had, he had like a, A money-making gig and and side gig was kind of starting churches and preaching everywhere, right? And so that's what Paul did. He was what we'd call today bivocational as, as he lived as a preacher of the gospel. Now, Paul opted to renounce the pay that he deserved, and he argues to the Corinthians that he does this in order to serve them. Verse 18, he says, What reward do I get that when I preach I offer the good news free of charge? That's why I don't use the rights to which I'm entitled through the gospel. Paul uses this language about rights here on purpose. The Corinthians would argue that they have the right to eat idol meat. And earlier they claimed, back in chapter 6, that they have the right to do anything. Paul is saying that he has the right to get paid. He has the right to make a living, and he freely gives up this right. In turn, then, Paul argues that we can place aside our freedoms and place ourselves under others. Verse 19, he says, although I'm free from all people, I make myself a slave to all people to recruit more of them. Now, in this section where Paul talks about to the Jews, I become like a Jew, and to those and to and so those who are not in a law, become like those not in a law. It might sound a little bit disingenuous when we first hear it, as if Paul is saying that we should not live authentically where we are, but take on the characteristics of wherever we find ourselves. It sounds like Paul's saying we should be contextual chameleons, that we should just take on the lifestyle of whoever we're around. Is that what Paul would be saying? I don't think that that's fully what Paul is arguing for, but let's take a look at those breakdowns. So first, Paul says he acts like a Jew to the Jews, which is kind of funny for Paul to be saying because Paul himself was a Jew. But Paul's identity has been so shaped by following Jesus that he can say, I act like a Jew. What would that mean? In Paul's world, it likely meant that he would follow kosher rules around Jewish people so that he could effectively talk with them and not offend them and have a chance to actually share with them about what he's found in Jesus. Then he states that he acts like those under the law, which may just be a further description of acting like a Jew. Paul wants to assure he wants to assure his readers and hearers that he is not subject to living under this law anymore. Then Paul states the opposite. He says to those outside the law, to Gentiles, he acts like those outside the law what would this mean? Probably the opposite of eating kosher. He willingly gives up all of those cultural marks that he would have had as a Jew, all of those marks that he learned all the way growing up in order to effectively talk with them. Now, Paul is not the equivalent of someone who has a house-divided sticker on their car, who's rooting for Carolina State and Duke all at the same time so they never lose, right? That's not what he's doing. Some of us with the sting of defeat this morning. No, but Paul describes his rationale earlier in verse 12, and this is why it's part of his whole context. He says, however, he says, we put up with everything so we don't put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We put up with everything so we don't put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And this leads to Paul bringing everything back together. Because listen in verse 22, he says, I act weak to the weak, so I can recruit the weak. Paul doesn't say that he becomes like the weak like he says he becomes like a Jew or like he becomes those, like those outside the law. In other words, just like Paul isn't taking pay, so the Corinthians, who have knowledge and wisdom, who he's talked about earlier, should become weak. We should place ourselves under one another, he says, and renounce some of our rights when needed so that nothing is an obstacle to receiving the good news of Jesus. We can place aside our freedoms, Paul says, so that we can partner with the good news. When Paul finally gets to the conclusion of this argument that he is making, all the way in chapter 11, he says just these words, follow my example just like I follow Christ's. What does he mean by that? <coughs> that in our freedom as Christians, we are slaves to Christ who laid his life down for others. We should model our lives after him. I was struck and still am by what Paul says in the final verse of our reading today. He says, all the things I do are for the sake of the gospel so I can be a partner with it, So I can be a partner with the gospel, Paul says. What does this mean? How can we be a partner with good news? Like, what, what is he saying? I think it means that we are more than just heralds of the good news. In other words, you don't just hear the good news about Jesus and then tell others. That's what we sometimes have traditionally read it as. No, you experience the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for yourself, you experience the healing and purpose that following Jesus in God's kingdom brings. And as you participate in it, you become an ambassador of it. In 2 Corinthians 5, which is the next letter that you know, the, the Corinthians wrote back to Paul after this one. And then he writes back to them again. So he's, he has this ongoing correspondence with these folks. And I think Paul describes what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, all of these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He has trusted us with this ministry of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors who represent Christ. God is negotiating with you through us. We beg you as Christ's representatives, be reconciled to God. Paul describes our task to us. We are reconciled to God through Jesus, and then we become ambassadors of this reconciliation. And we do it in how we live before others. We participate, we partner with this good news. We have received this gift of salvation and reconciliation, and now we participate with Jesus in the gospel's joyful work. So all the things I do, Paul writes, all the things I do are for the sake of the gospel so I can be a partner with it. Friends, if all the things I did were the sake of God's good news, for the sake of being an ambassador of that good news, my life would look different I would give things up that seem really good and charming at first glance. Things that sound like a slam dunk, like being an NFL quarterback. And people around would say, that's a shame that he gave that up. And Paul is saying that in God's way of looking at the world, giving something up for the sake of others is a shame no longer. In fact, it's what we are called to do. It is the way of Jesus who took on our humanity and all of its brokenness and imperfection, and who gave up the freedom of God to be bound in a body, ultimately to give his life up on a cross for us. Friends, I want you to prayerfully consider these questions this morning. What would it look like for you to say that all the things I do are for the sake of the gospel, so I can be a partner with it? I wonder, who are you being called to serve and to place yourself under? I wonder what frightens you about following Jesus in this way. In what ways is your life with God not satisfying in a way that compels you to give your entire life to it? And then what would you have to change to make it so? Let's pray. Lord, Paul proclaims that all the things he does are for the sake of your good news. Lord, rather than seeing that as just Paul speaking Paul and him being one super apostle doing that, I pray that we would instead follow his pattern. That all the things we do might become partnership in your good news. That everything we do, whether we eat or drink, he would say, we do it all for your glory. God, I pray that we would each, as we come to anticipate Lent coming, that we would ask ourselves those questions. What would it mean? What would it mean for us to live as partners of your good news, to be ambassadors for you wherever we are, whether we find ourselves in one crowd one day and in one crowd the next? How can we authentically live as followers of you so that others might come to know the freedom that you offer? It's in Christ's holy name we pray, amen.